Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Anne Bartuska, RFF's Vice President for Land, Water, and Nature, about the 2018 Farm Bill. The Farm Bill is a massive piece of legislation, and we'll ask Anne to focus in on some key topics related to land conservation and agricultural research. She'll share her expertise on those topics, along with the connection between the Farm Bill and forest management, climate change, meatless hamburgers, and more. Stay with us. Anne Bartuska, it is great to have you here on Resources Radio. Well, I'm glad to be here, Daniel. So, Anne, we're going to talk today about the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018, better known as the Farm Bill. But before we get into our main subject for today, we always like to learn how people um, ended up where they are in their careers uh, when we're speaking with them. So we're interested in how you got interested in environmental policy and how you ended up working at USDA, which is where you were before uh, joining us here at RFF. Well, you know, I was thinking about this and, of course, people periodically ask, well, how, what's your career path? And uh, it really goes back to discovering ecology as an undergraduate. I was actually a biology pre-med major, and um, by taking this ecology course, just really rec- made me recognize that that was just the perfect subject area for the kinds of things I was interested in, which is the connectedness of things. And actually, I became an ecosystem ecologist partly because of that. My Graduate degrees, all my research, all my interests really revolved around environmental issues associated with coal mining and strip mining in particular. And so that got me on the path for environmental policy just because you're dealing with such a, an important topic that is regulated and a lot of um, overlying laws, both at the state and federal level. But I also knew I didn't want to go the academic track when I finished my degrees and it got me into being a manager for what at that time was called the National Acid Precipitation Assessment Program, or NAPAP, uh-huh. as we affectionately know it, uh-huh. which was designed to do acid rain research to lead up to a reauthorization of the Clean Air Act. And that was 1982. I basically uh, left the actual research practice world into the world of environmental policy and, and management of research. And that's uh, really got me started in my career. I did that at NC State, but I, I became a um, Forest Service employee late in the 80s, and that Forest Service is part of USDA. Going on further, ended up at USDA in Washington, D.C. with the Forest Service and did a whole bunch of different jobs there, including my, as I like to call it, the the years of managing the timber program and the grazing program and all the issues associated with that at a Mm -hmm. very contentious time, including Spotted Owl, Mm. but then uh, was asked to, after leading the research branch of the Forest Service, was asked during the Obama administration to move over to the department in the research education and economics part of USDA. And I guess it's right here pointing out, and I'll talk about it later when we talk about the Farm Bill, is um, there are 16 agencies at USDA. It is a very large organization. Yeah. And um, the Research Education Economics Branch, mission area we call it, uh, is very diverse, but it's really focused on research and statistics that support the rest of USDA programs. And that's what I did for um, almost seven years as a deputy undersecretary, as as a career civil servant still. I was not an appointee. 
But that really gave me a breadth of knowledge and understanding about what the scope of USDA programs were. And so it's been a really interesting arc of my career over the last, and I'm not going to count the decades, but um, <laughs> it's been a few. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's fascinating. And um, it's so interesting to, to have worked on so many of these issues. You're the second or third person on the podcast to mention the spotted owl issue, and it's actually a history that I know very little about. So we'll have to do an episode on the spotted owl at some point. And uh, we'll also have to share knowledge about um, Raleigh, North Carolina, where I spend plenty of time as well. So thanks again for, for joining us. And there are so many things we could ask you about, Anne, but uh, we wanted to, to talk to you about the Farm Bill today, partly because the USDA hosted uh, a number of listening sessions on the Farm Bill to gather public input on developing rules to implement the most recent version of the Farm Bill uh, just last month in March. And so so we wanted to learn from you um, about some of the important provisions of the Farm Bill that you've focused on in your career. And there's way too much to cover in one episode again on this. So so we're going to focus in on sort of conservation and research um, elements of the of the bill. Um, so keeping that in mind, can you give us a, a kind of broad overview of the key components that have historically been a part of the farm bill and kind of what they're, you know, how much they cost and how that might have changed over time? Sure. Um, actually, in preparation for this podcast, I went back a little in history because I, I realized I was not sure myself how this all started. And it, it goes back to 1933 and FDR hmm. as part of the New Deal to help stabilize farmers. And, you know, as I think fundamental to what the Farm Bill is, is how do you sustain, what are the mechanisms, what are the programs you need to maintain farm production, which is food production for the United States and all the ramifications associated with that? So the, the bare bones of the original Farm Bill was really looking at farm products and conservation and how keeping farmers on the land. Mm -hmm. It ex expanded um, into adding the what we used to be called food stamps, which was to provide a, a buffer for really low income and, and struggling American people during the, the end of the Depression into the beginning of World War II, and to really create a safety net for food and nutritional policy. Mm -hmm. The food stamp program was terminated, but the farm programs continued, and full authorization of the Farm Bill started in 1938. But the food stamp program came back in 1964 under Johnson. So the the whole idea, and if you think about the Farm Bill as being a five-year cyclical farm-to-table bill, that's probably close to what it is. Um, any aspect of food and food production, food use, uh, consumer activities, and in large part farm farming practices themselves are included in some aspect of the Farm Bill. And it's now up to this most recent one is um, authorized at the at four hundred and twenty eight point three billion dollars over five years, wow. and so it's huge. It's a huge investment. But eighty percent of that is the nutrition programs, and um, and so I think that just get tells you that the whole notion behind the farm bill is as a safety net. It's a it's to provide stability. And it's to be able to maintain a um, healthy food economy for the United States, first and foremost. Right. 
that's really helpful context. And the the what used to be called the food stamp program is now called Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. Um, and as you say, accounts for about 80% of the spending in the bill. So we're not going to focus on that component of it today, though. We're going to we're going to focus on sort of conservation programs as well as research and. When we think about rationales behind policy interventions that the government might take, it's pretty easy to imagine why something like SNAP is um, is justified and, and necessary um, as a safety net program. Um, but can you provide a little bit more of the rationale behind why the government um, in the United States intervenes in the agricultural sector, and particularly uh, when it comes to conservation? Uh, what's the rationale for, for intervention there? Well, let me go back to this whole notion of stabilization and the original uh, establishment language around the Farm Bill itself. And it, the context is in part because every, a farmer or producer actually works at a very narrow margin. There's, there is very little opportunity to build big savings, if you will, from the farm production itself. And so every time that you have a impact on annual production cycle could be flooding, could be extreme droughts, it could be uh, seed crop fails, it could be pests. There's almost no way to recover with that from that in a given season. And so the behind the the lot of the farm bill programs themselves are to be able to provide sustainability over time so that you maintain farmers on the land through the bad times so that we have a, a continue to have good agricultural production uh, across the United States. And so that's, mm-hmm. you know, those sort of the basic tenets around, around it. And so the idea of providing incentives to farmers to take on sustainability practice really started growing several, several years ago, probably several decades even now on recognizing that um, water quality issues could be managed if you could tweak farm practices. Um, Because of this narrow margin uh, that farmers operate in, they don't usually have the cash reserves to be able to, to make an investment. It could be as simple as putting in a culvert so that you reduce erosion from a road system. So the idea around the conservation titles in particular have grown, but it really started with this idea of how can we help incentivize a farmer to take action that is actually for the greater good. It Mm -hmm. could be water quality. It could be maintaining soil on the ground. And of course, we all have pictures of the Dust Bowl and how that that affected practices in the United States and the in all sorts of different aspects. But what has really been fascinating to watch is the evolution of these conservation programs to be much more integrated, to be looking at multiple practices on farm, and more recently to be looking at a at a regional context. One of the evolutions that I think is is interesting to be seeing is that on farm itself where you can be integrating practices that deal with habitat, that you can be looking at water quality practices, um, and then being able to integrate them in a way that actually addresses stewardship of the overall farm system itself has been one of the, the really great changes that have taken place through the conservation titles. In addition, one of the, the newer programs called the Regional Conservation Partnership Program enables 
farmers or producers to work with other private landowners and public land managers so that you have a much more integrated approach to conservation strategies at a watershed scale. And, you know, for those of us who deal with environmental issues, that kind of a scale gives you a much greater opportunity to to affect change than if you're just dealing with a a small plot or an individual farm field. So that's been one of the the evolutions I think that's been very positive. Then probably what's not known so much about the farm pill is there's actually a forestry title. So it's not just about agricultural lands, but also about uh, the opportunities to bring forests and into the equation. And a lot of of farm uh, managers also have woodlots, so to be able to have a more integrated approach to uh, forest practices and conservation practices is, um, again, one of the changes that have taken place. And there's a lot of other things in that forestry title, but that that being able to work across lands to form partnerships uh, has really been a tremendous uh, opportunity to achieve conservation at scale rather than just limiting it to an individual farm. Right. So it's it's interesting that there are these broad scale approaches being implemented uh, increasingly under the Farm Bill. But for me, so I'm someone who works a lot on energy and climate and, uh, you know, c- conservation activities on forestry land or farmland is something that is not at all intuitive to me. So could you maybe give us an example or two of what kinds of on-the-ground activities these programs support and and how they might play out at scale? Oh, absolutely. One of the programs that's called the Agricultural Conservation Easement Program is designed to help support the establishment of conservation easements that would then put into a longer-term protection high-valued parts of farmers' production or productive area or wetlands, which is one of the the target areas. And Mm -hmm. so this would enable then a farmer to get some reimbursement for putting that land into an easement that sustains the habitat characteristics and basically enables then the much more integrated environmental conservation approaches across land. So that's one that's been, I think, very successful in in building in easements. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other practices that might occur through the EQIP or Environmental Quality Incentives Program, I mentioned um, culvert replacement at right. one point earlier, but some of the, the activities that was, were really uh, fairly recent is putting in pollinator habitat. If a farmer who is growing, as we call it, a stream bank to stream bank because of the value of their crop, for them to take out any part of that land from agricultural production reduces their, their actual um, profits for the year. If they could be incentivized through a program to put in a pollinator habitat, they not only then don't lose the economic value as much, but they also get side benefits for that habitat. And so we've been able to put in quite a few acres and above millions of acres in the United States through some of the pollinator habitat programs of the Conservation Reserve Program, as well as the Conservation Stewardship Program. Uh, One of the interesting ones that's maybe not obvious to people is this notion of cover crops. And that is in between planting maybe corn or soy or wheat, 
you would put in alfalfa, which which is does a couple things. One is very rich in nitrogen. It has a lot of organic matter. A farmer will put in the alfalfa as a secondary crop and then turn that into the, the soil so that you're basically getting, in some ways, you could call it green fertilization. Mm-hmm. Well, the funds to support that type of activity could come from the EQIP program or Environmental Quality Incentives uh, program. Uh-huh. And so these are very you know, tangible activities. I think one of the, the two areas that most uh, frequently the programs are used for are water quality and quantity. Quality is minimizing uh, runoff into our water bodies, etc., and that could be done through putting in buffers along creeks um, or streams. Riparian forest buffers have become very popular because you you get added habitat value. But there's right. also there's also quantity, and um, and that's where putting in stream side stabilization efforts, culverts, other kinds of uh, mechanical systems really are helpful to improve the water quantity side of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And and again, for those of us not expert on the uh, on this topic, I remember learning about the word riparian when I was doing an internship, uh, maybe ten years ago or something like that. But can can you just remind us what riparian kind of refers to, and uh, and and specifically with riparian forest buffers? Uh, we all speak in in our own tongues, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And riparian riparian is just the the edges of a stream or waterway. And usually it's it's considered dimensionally it's, it might be from three feet to ten feet could be larger but it would be just that that area right along a string bank uh, where you can do some kind of vegetative treatment that would enable again water quality issues management and and being able to stabilize the stream banks. Got it. Yeah, it's so interesting to learn about these kind of specific activities that take place on the farm. So. If we if we look ahead a little bit and imagine out uh, to the next farm bill, or maybe you know farm bill two cycles from now, which would be ten years roughly from now, are there major reforms that you think might be coming down the line in future years, and or reforms that you think would be particularly valuable uh, to uh, to these types of programs that we've been talking about? I don't know if these would be reforms uh, per se, but um, I. Clearly, there's been a lot of discussion around the supplemental nutrition program, the the food stamp program, and the viability of that in the long run. And and you have two things working at at play there. One is increasingly the number of American households are dropping below the poverty line. And so this is really a nutritional stabilization program. Um, And that's working at cross purposes with those who, who feel like there's too much government funding being spent. And so how we address that and what is the management of that that program in the long run, I think that will continue to play out. And actually, even though the, the farm bill is authorized for 10 years, it's every five years that there's actually a new farm bill, plus or minus, depends on how the Congress uh, acts. Mm-hmm. But um, But we would be actually coming up for the next one in 2022. And I will tell you, my friends at USDA have already started working on (laughs) on pieces of that. So the other one I think will continue to be uh, a challenge and raise a lot of conversation is about the farm subsidies. And, um, you know, what does that actually look like? How do you manage that? There's a good reason for, again, farm stabilization across uh, years that 
we have established the subsidy program for, uh, but that I think will continue. So those those two could have had debates almost every farm bill, and I think they will continue to have them. Coming up, I think where where you will see a lot more action is about food labeling. Hmm. Not only the demand by consumers to um, know what the nutrition is of the the products that they're consuming. And this is where you have to work with the food production people, companies, obviously, in in particular, but also um, things that are being called a particular name that is not really, well, let me just speak to it, meat. (laughs) We have, obviously, meat has from beef, from livestock, from other animals is, is something that we all recognize by that word. Now there are new types of meat protein being produced in laboratories or, um, you know, the famous non-animal bleeding hamburger, uh, which is the impossible burger, I think it's called. (laughs) Right. Um, and, And so what should that be called? And so this notion of traditionally labeling something by a term that is well understood by consumers, but it isn't really what what is traditionally considered that product, I think we're going to have to be able to address that. And dairy is another one where the proliferation of almond milk and coconut milk and other kinds of of milk products that are from non-cattle, non-dairy cows, um, has already caused consumer confusion. And so that is obviously an evolutionary change that's taking place too. Yeah. Oh, that'll be so interesting to to watch, and um, and and that actually plays into the next question I wanted to ask you, which uh, was related to climate change. So, you know, some of the some of the not all of the motivation behind um, entrepreneurs developing these sort of non meat meat alternatives um, are are motivated in part by uh, the desire to reduce climate impacts as well as other types of environmental impacts from um, from grazing or um, you know enteric fermentation from cattle we talked about methane on uh, one of our recent episodes and so are there other elements of climate change that are likely to have major effects on on farmers that would in turn affect provisions uh, in the farm bill uh, regarding conservation or or perhaps uh, you know some of these subsidies that we're talking about. Um, I can imagine some potential impacts, but I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on that topic. One of the areas that I haven't talked about is research, and I think it, in terms of responding to climate change, uh, that's one of the the most po- more positive areas where. Our research activities supported through USDA, either Agricultural Research Service or through the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, is funding research in areas of um, being able to anticipate more extreme events and how you have new cropping systems that respond to that, where um, what are the new genomic or basically what kind of seed material do you have? that can be grown under these more stress conditions. And for example, we're really interested at looking at um, heat tolerant particular seed lines mm-hmm. of, of commonly used crops that could then be planted out in areas where we're increasingly getting heat stress or those that are more drought tolerant. And the wonderful thing is there is an incredible array of, of variability in plants and so the the notion to be able to move that into production, still maintain productive systems, but either even under those extreme events. 
Uh, we're looking at the same thing in terms of our water systems and how we manage the irrigation water where appropriate or access to water. The uh, flooding issues are c clearly are a dominant concern in, in certain areas. So that clim climate impacts on the system are being researched and new products are being developed for that. One area that might unravel, and we're, we're really trying to sort this out, is the disconnection between the population dynamics of pollinators and pests and the, the uh, population dynamics of a plant. And there's two situations going on there. Um, in some cases, insects and diseases are responding very favorably to some of these environmental changes caused by climate change mm -hmm. and therefore are disrupting the production system in a way that we had not predicted. And so you might be getting more populations of a, of a particular nasty insect per year, which increases the, the pressure on a plant to respond to it. Right. On, the other, on the other side, from the pollinator standpoint, there is a offsetting of the, in, in some research that's been done, there's an offsetting of the population cycle of the pollinator that is now off when a plant is needs the pollinator. So if you just it's just it's from a point perspective of time, if the all of a sudden the pollinator is out doing its thing in April, but the plant's not opening its flowers for pollination till May, then you're going to have this real disconnect. And so that how that plays out is something that is a great deal of concern, especially for the many fruits and vegetables that require pollination for their uh, their production right wow yeah so many areas to watch um that i know so little about it's really fascinating to learn you know just a little thumbnail sketch about these things well that's you know that's the nature of food and agriculture i mean there's just something going on all the time <laughs> yeah yeah well thank you so much uh and for for joining us and and helping us learn about at least a couple of these fascinating topics and uh giving us tools to to move deeper into them in the future. And um, so we're going to go now to our final question, our top of the stack question. So what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? And uh, I'll offer a quick um, uh, factoid that I learned recently related to these uh, meatless burgers, the Impossible Burger. Yesterday, we're taping on April 2nd, and um, yesterday was April Fool's Day. And it was the, uh, ironically, maybe the day that Burger King announced that they were going to be carrying this impossible burger in the future, which I thought maybe was an April Fool's joke, but I don't think it actually is. So um, I don't go to Burger King often. Um, I can't remember the last time I did, but um, but I will look forward to sampling an impossible burger at some point in the future, um, if it's not an April Fool's joke. Um, so that's my recommendation or, or thought for the day. And now I'll turn to you, Anne. What's, uh, what's at the top of your stack? Well, I've been thinking a lot about wildfires and about water. And yeah. um, obviously, there's some connections between the two of those. And so actually, because I was just involved in a, a water conference, I was looking at the USGS water data for the nation site and playing around with some of the data there. And it's it's actually kind of fun because you can zero in on your own locality and you can look at, at water quality issues and water quantity. And, and so... Uh, because I've been sort of concerned about the whole water issue and where it's coming from, um, I have to say USGS water site's been very popular on my laptop. 
Great. Well, yeah, plenty of data to play around with. That'll be great. And we'll provide a link um, to that site on our show page so listeners can uh, can check it out for themselves and, and see what they want to visualize. Well, um, it's been really great to talk to you once again, Ann Bartuska from Resources for the Future, our Vice President for Land, Water, and Nature. We really appreciate you joining us. Well, I had a great time, and, and thank you, Daniel, for giving me this opportunity. I, I love talking about agriculture. Yeah, well, we'll look forward to next time. Thanks again. <laughs> All right, take care. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.